From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I can't believe it's almost here. On Sunday, September 8th, tortilla heads will be gathering at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes downtown for the Great Tortilla Tournament. In the meantime, I'm checking in quickly with Gustavo Ariano about the elite eight tortilla makers that have made it this far, or the ESO eight. ESO. ESO. <laughs> in case you don't know Spanish, ESO in Mexican Spanish means like, that's it, like, Right on, more like right on. So the SOA, I'm a sucker for alliteration. So we're saying the right on eight. So it's the eight finalists so far, four corn and four flour. And obviously each uh, judge, we have our the two that we have reached to. The judging is all in-house. So just to remind everyone, we have Gustavo Ariano and Connie Alvarez, who works here at KCRW on flour. And good for producer Nick Liao and myself, Evan Kleiman, are on corn. So what are the eight? And what are the matchups? So let's start with the corn bracket. We'll start actually with you. You have Taco Maria, which was the finalist last year in the corn category, and the number one seed this time versus uh, underdog in a great place in the San Fernando Valley, Tortilleria La Talpense. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about both. So Taco Maria is this famed blue corn tortilla made from blue conico corn, an heirloom variety brought up from Mexico by um, Macienda, a distribution company that specializes in finding markets for traditional farmers in Mexico. So it's blue corn tortilla. Blue corn is a softer type of corn than the yellow corns usually. And so the key attribute of blue corn tortillas is usually a softer bite. Taco Maria's has that characteristic soft bite, but it still has the suppleness that you want in a tortilla. And it's gorgeous. I mean, the color is Unbelievable. Carlos gave me some that had not been put on the comal yet. Mm -hmm. So I had the fun of actually toasting them myself, cooking them myself the first time, and watching the transformation of the color and the layers form. So like the face of the tortilla happened when it bubbles up was really fun. Yeah, that blue corn tortilla, it's the base for his restaurant, which of course has been nominated multiple times for James Beard, got its first Michelin star last year or this year, actually. So amazing, amazing corn tortilla. Let's hear a little bit from Carlos. I'm Carlos Salgado, the chef and owner of Taco Maria. Uh, We're in Costa Mesa, California, here at my restaurant. Taco Maria is the synthesis of of all my various influences. California cuisine, regionality, a real passion for for ingredients. We encountered uh, this this maize, which is called Conico Azul. It spoke to me. As a chef, you you feel lucky to, to find or discover like a very, very special ingredient. As I see it, my responsibility is to take products that are cultivated by people with good values and good ethics and then manipulate them only as necessary in order to, to give the best expression of that ingredient. For an ingredient that is so important to the cultural identity of my mother's Mexico, it is the right thing to do to find a very special, delicious, beautiful product in order to use as the foundation uh, for the food that we serve here at Taco Maria. But La Talpense, that La one. Talpense for me was a total mind-blowing surprise because I didn't, I was tasting quite a few gordita-style tortillas were in my grouping, which means they're a little thicker. And often the gorditas, they're great when they're first made, but if you have to reheat them after they've been frozen or whatever, usually they don't hold up. They're kind of too clunky. 
But this tortilla the, from La Talpense had a lot of finesse, even though it was thick. It was also supple. It had that gel that I love, that kind of bouncy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a, a nice elasticity, very corny flavor, which is good in a corn tortilla. So I really liked it. Actually, I ended up eating the entire dozen. <laughs> it's a good one. And it, despite the name Tortilleria La Talpense, is actually a restaurant right there in San Fernando. And they only make their tortillas upon request. So you have to go in, they make them right there, pat, 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 and then they sell them. But it's, it's a really good one. And I'm happy for the San Fernando Valley to be able to Me make a too. second appearance. Yeah. Me too. Represent. <laughs> and then the second one, Nick Liao's category, he's going, this is a Boyle Heights showdown on the level of Garfield Heights versus Roosevelt High. So Colonel of Truth versus Guisados. I've had them both. I mean, Guisados for me is one of my favorite tortillas in town. It's very, very different. And we've actually had, we've had Eddie De La Torre, um, the man who actually makes the masa that he then sells to his brother who forms them and sells, makes tacos at Guisados. And he was saying how they're made specially for that kind of, for a guisado, for a stew. Yeah. And so they're a little bit thicker. Oh, so delicious. But they're really delicious. And they, they're really gel. They, they have that marvelous, just teeth sinking texture. Oh, I love them. Yeah. No. And what I love, Gisada, anytime I'm in Boyle Heights, I always have to eat a couple of tacos because, and it's that tortilla. The stews, the guisos themselves are fine, but that tortilla is almost pillowy. And, and, and it's interesting because it's a corn tortilla, so it's smaller and it's gordita, but it has almost this uh, texture to it. That's, uh, you put it best. Gummy, and gummy's not the best way no, to do it. No, it's like, it's a gel that's a jelly, formed by yeah. the starch and it it's just so good. I love their quesadillas too in that. It's like just, candy. It is like candy. And then that's up against Kernel of Truth, which is this new entrant onto the scene that's become really famed because they're working with a yellow heirloom corn and doing everything in the nixtamalization and much like Guisados does in the real old way and trying to do it in a in a production facility so that they can make a lot. And it's a wonderful entry into the tortilla world of Los Angeles, obviously. And uh, Nick says that it has it had just the best flavor of yeah. of of what he's tasted, just super corn-driven. No, Colonel of Truth was a finalist last year in the Fuerta Four, just like Taco Maria. And what I love about them is that they're really pushing the tortilla game. Like recently, I haven't tasted it yet, but they're getting pink corn from Michoacan, from the purepechas, and they're making them into pink tortillas. Oh, I can't. I have to try those. Oh, yeah. And yeah, no, it's it's true. Like, they also make blue corn tortillas, and uh, for their yellow corn, it's not from Mexico, but they're getting organic non-GMO corn from the United States. So, and what's also interesting, despite that, it is a machine tortilla. So they make them mass produce, and usually, almost always, tortillas hecha mano will beat the machine. But I also think with Kernel of Truth, what that shows is if you have the best ingredients possible, it really makes a tortilla beat sometimes just handmade stuff. So let's go to flour now. So we have the two matchups. Why don't you tell us about them? Yeah, so for flour on Connie's bracket, it's Sonora Town, which is a champion from last year, versus number two, Home State. So this is a great matchup. Because That's a great matchup. I mean, it's like, I don't even know what to do. How do you match up those two? They're both so good. So different. Yeah. The Sonora style, which, of course, thin, big, translucent tortillas versus Tex-Mex style. And what's great about Home State is that it's, one of, I think, one of the very, very few Tex-Mex styles tortillas in Southern California. I think in L.A. it's the only one. And it has this, 
because Brianna's inspiration is her grandma, she is making it with a very powdery feel because that's what her grandma used to do. She used to roll extra flour at the very end. So when it went onto the comal, you still had that lovely powderiness oh of the flour. And it is so good. And yeah, both those tortillas are just incredible. They're thick. And the great thing, it's also, you know, uh, Sonora Town, woman run, home state, woman run. True. It's like, so Mujeres bringing it back to, you know, their, the tortilla domain. And what's the second bracket? Yours? Th- that's my bracket. So for my bracket, finalist from last year for Fuerte Ford, Burrito La Palma versus a classic, La Monarca. I didn't even know La Monarca, La Monarca made tortillas. This is a funny thing. And part of this is because of KCRW's good food. We made them famous because of their bakery. And I remember when they started off here, what, West LA, Santa Monica, people, uh, we were explaining what, or yourself was explaining what pan dulce is, all these different conchas. So now they have a nice little empire, I think eight or nine locations. But a couple of years ago, they started offering breakfast tacos and they started making their own tortillas and they also have them for sale. So they sell them to you raw. So you, you have to cook them right there. And they're small, but... Again, going back to ingredients, they use Sonoran wheat. It's really close in approximation to Sonora Town. And actually, there when we were at the SO8 last year, it was La Monarca versus Sonora Town, and they were so almost the same that I had to go through eight tortillas before I finally crowned Sonora Town the winner. So that's a so La Monarca makes a great flour tortilla, but then they're going up against my favorite flour tortilla in Southern California, which is Burritos La Palma. An amazing, delicious. Tortilla. So, you know, that's what they make. Uh, Albert Puñuelos makes them um, too for his small little burritos de birria de res. He also sells them as well. And they're almost Sonora style. It's weird because if you're in northern Mexico, you're going to get the thin style. The one in, in Burrito La Palma is just a little bit thicker, but more buttery somehow from Zacatecas. It's funny that you say they're more buttery because the difference between Sonora Town and Burrito La Palma is Burrito La Palma is using lard and Sonora Town is using butter. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. I don't even know these things sometimes. I just go by the taste, damn it. So that one's a great matchup as well. And again, going back to machine made. So La Monarca makes them by machine because they sell them, you know, they sell them at all their locations. They're usually right there in the front counter. So next time you're getting your concha with your cafecito de olla, get some tortillas. And with Burrito La Palma and their two locations in El Monte and Santana, you have to ask them for sale, but they'll sell them to you. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait till we get to the Fuerte Four. Fuerte Four. And remember, folks, kcrw.com forward slash tortilla for all your tortilla info. And RSVP, let us know if you're coming to the contest, which is the 8th of September. At La Plaza near Olvera Street, right next to Union Station. All LA, all wonderful. I've been talking to Gustavo Ariano about the Great Tortilla Tournament. Please RSVP at kcrw.com slash tortilla, just so we know to expect you. Many of you are diehard corn tortilla freaks, but did you know that there's a scientific process that makes your tortillas more delicious and nutritious? After the break, a deep dive into nixtamalization. That's when good food returns. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness, optimism and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. 
When you bite into a taco, hurache, or a fresh corn tortilla, you're tasting the results of an ancient chemical process that dates to 1500 BCE. In 2016, the science podcast Distillations took a deep dive into the process known as nixtamalization. Rigoberto Hernandez reported from Philadelphia. Since 1998, the Food and Drug Administration has required most grains to be fortified with a vitamin that has all kinds of health benefits. The least includes breakfast cereals, breads, rice, pasta, cookies, and crackers. And it's been especially beneficial for developing fetuses. A new study from CDC researchers found that since fortifying products with folic acid became a national health policy, rates of serious birth defects have dropped. It was a huge public health victory for the FDA. Neural tube defects dropped by 35%. 1,300 babies a year were saved from these debilitating birth defects. The idea was that these grains were so pervasive in our diet that we'd all benefit from the added folic acid and pregnant women could count on getting it even if they weren't taking prenatal vitamins. Except the growing part of the population was left out. I talked to Cynthia Pellegrini over the phone. She's with the March of Dimes, a nonprofit that advocates for the health of mothers and their children. What we saw over the late 90s and the 2000s was that those uh, neural tube defect rates remained persistently higher in the Hispanic population. What our working hypothesis became was wheat flour was not a staple of the diet. Mm -hmm. The corn, corn matzo flour was the grain staple, and that was not being fortified. So why didn't the FDA allow fortification of corn tortillas? It comes down to a cultural oversight and a hidden chemical process that some experts think predates the Aztecs. It's called niche tamalization. It's a pretty simple alkaline process where a calcium hydroxide is added to the water the corn cooks in. And for years, the FDA was worried that it wouldn't play nice with the added folic acid. So as soon as the water comes to boil, then I, I add the calcium hydroxide, the cow, which is food grade. This is Ben Miller. He's something of a celebrity chef in Philadelphia. We're in the kitchen of South Philly Barbacoa, the restaurant he runs with his wife, Christina Martinez. The walls are bright yellow and covered with paintings from a local artist, and dried chili peppers in pots hang from the walls. They are known for opening early, like 5 a.m. early, being extremely loyal to the workers and locals who eat here and their seriously delicious corn tortillas. It turns out that they are so delicious because Ben and Christina painstakingly make them from scratch. And it's because they make their tortillas from scratch that they have to practice the ancient art of nishtamalization. And they're the only restaurant in Philly that does it. This is Christina, the co-owner of South Philly Barbacoa. Sadly, most Mexican restaurants use tortillas that kind of taste like plastic. When we go to restaurants, they always have the same kind of tortilla. You can only find the homemade ones here. And people notice. More and more people come every day. Tortillas, even delicious ones like these, are actually pretty basic. You just take corn that's soaked in water and grind it. The result is a pasty dough called masa that you can flatten and cook into a tortilla. That's it. So now I just want this to come back to a boil and then I'm going to put my corn in. And you'll see immediately the corn changes color and gets a lot darker. This is what we're going for with the Nixtamal process is this hard outer shell that's going to disintegrate and the, uh, the endosperm inside is going to um, release its, its, its vitamins. Ben learned nishtamalization from one of his employees who learned it as a child in Mexico. 
He improved his technique by going to Cristina's hometown in Toluca, Mexico, and watching her mother do it. So this is the corn that's already been cooked. It's gone through the nixtamalization process, and this hull is completely falling off. Now, we can wash this, and we do. We rinse it a few times to get kind of some of that cow taste off of it. You can rub it together a little bit and loosen those skins up. And we change the water a couple times. You don't have to do it to an extreme unless you're going for some kind of pure white uh, masa, but it's okay for us with a little bit of specks in it. That cow is the calcium hydroxide. The next step is to grind the masa in a red mill that they brought back from Mexico. It kind of looks like a huge coffee grinder. Ben adds a little water and they have masa to make tortillas. But I'll tighten it to the right amount when I feel it. And then I'll take whatever had been ground that's too coarse and then I'll put it back so it gets ground to the right consistency. You have to kind of ease into it. Okay. I learned this all by trial and error. Nishtamalization not only makes the tortilla softer, more chewy, and arguably more delicious, but it also makes it nice and accessible and adds minerals like calcium, iron, and magnesium. This is especially important when the corn tortilla is a staple of your diet. I wanted to know more about how this works, so naturally I turned to Bob. The process of heating up the corn flour with a strong base uh, actually does something which we chemists call saponifies the ester linkages, which is it breaks down the starch and breaks down the starch in such a way that the niacin and other B vitamins that are, that are bound into that starch matrix are released. The advantage that nystimalization also adds is that because they used uh, wood ash of one kind or another, there were other minerals that were added to the flour that weren't naturally occurring in, in the corn itself. Corn, or maize, was a staple in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. Ancient civilizations like the Aztecs probably wouldn't have flourished the way they did without it. And I would argue that no, Mesoamerican culture could not have developed the way it did without maize, and specifically without this nishtamalizing food way. This is Rachel Briggs. She's a PhD candidate studying nishtamalization at the University of Alabama. By food way, Rachel's talking about food plus all the cultural practices that go into making that food. The importance of it, of course, is, is that it does biologically enhance maize. It helps to release some of these uh, essential amino acids and B vitamins that are locked within the kernel of the, of the plant, of the seed, and it transforms it from a plant that is otherwise just a regular food that is not a viable staple into one that is a life-sustaining food and one that populations can use as a dietary staple. So something they can use to receive 40% or over of their daily caloric intake. I mean, it's a huge difference. In fact, after Europeans encountered corn during the colonization of the Americas, they took corn back to Europe with them, but they didn't take nixtamalization. Later, in the 18th and 19th centuries, peasant populations in Spain and Italy started relying heavily on this grain when wheat crops fail, and it had disastrous results. When it's not nichedmalized, when it's not being enhanced in this way, I mean, it's it's not even that it's not nutrition. It's not even um, it's not nutritionally viable. I mean, it actually like increases your chances of pellagrin, increases your chances of malnutrition. I mean, it's 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 shocking, you know. Pellagrin is a chronic wasting disorder caused by niacin deficiency. 
All these Europeans were eating corn full of niacin, yet they were dying of niacin deficiency. When European colonists first came over to the New World, when explorers and missionaries and various people, when they were first interacting with native groups, they saw what they were doing. And they saw that they were adding lime and wood ash and lye to their maize products, but they in no way thought that that was biological. They in no way thought that that was nutritionally enhancing their food. They really thought it was just this peculiar way that these people cooked. So how did ancient Mesoamericans come up with this technique that turned out to be so important? You know, I, I get that question a lot. Um, but my answer, it's a bit, you know, it doesn't quite answer it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, which is that people throughout time and throughout the world have constantly been experimenting with the world around them to figure out how to make it work for them and also, you know, what they can do to to figure out better ways of living. And I don't think that it's any wonder that they would have figured this out. I think it's I think it's actually it was probably inevitable. Other historians think that the original nationalizers might have been doing it simply because it made corn softer and easier to work with. This would have been reason enough. So when I eat one of Ben and Christina's handmade tortillas, or it's more like six tortillas, I'm eating something that's a thousand years old in a way. And it's way more delicious than the tortillas most of us are used to from the supermarket. Christina is telling students the importance of food being nutritious and authentic. Barbacoa tacos have to be eaten with homemade tortillas. And I want people to enjoy affordable real tortillas. Our community is growing here, and I want my kids to learn the difference between what's sold in stores and what we have here in South Philly Barbacoa. Ben and Christina go to great lengths to make their simple food the traditional way. And now they're taking it one step further. They're working with Tom Colton, an organic farmer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to grow corn for the restaurant. My wife is undocumented. A lot of, a lot of people that work in, in the industry and have families here and that are customers. By us pushing the, the culture forward and trying to raise the, the level of the food and represent what it is, we're trying to show that how much things are, are to offer with this, with this community here. Ben and Tom are planning to buy their corn from the Zapatistas, an indigenous leftist group in southern Mexico. We're in the process of trying to grow, grow um, something that we can use sustainably at the restaurant. We did a test batch of eight different varieties um, at the farm this year and to see what would what would take and um but it's a that's why they call it slow food it's like uh, this doesn't happen it, you know quickly you know it's it's a, it's a it's a few years project it's a it's a relationship that we that we have over over a number of years and um you know we're not in a rush you know we're we're taking it step by step you know I'm standing next to Christina at a commercial kitchen at the Free Library of Philadelphia. A camera above is bird's eye view of Christina making tortillas for a food history class from the Community College of Philadelphia. The Free Public Library has a commercial kitchen to teach people literacy through food. Today, she's showing them the real life version of what they've been studying, the chemistry and history behind tortillas. The most important thing today is for you to understand and taste when it's homemade, made from pre-made masa, and when it comes from the supermarket. I'm very excited that you're going to taste one of my tortillas. This one, it tastes more like kind of sweet, but then it's like, also I taste the corn, and it's softer. 
Yeah. It seems soft and fit to like bite into. It's good. <laughs> it's for like the net, the next top, um, next taldation, uh bread. It, it leaves like almost like this corn aftertaste. Besides the uh, the plain store brand one, it's so almost rubbery, almost, but it's really different. It's, it's, it is really different, though. I like it. And it's all because of niche tamalization. But this very process that Christina and Ben used to make their food more wholesome and delicious is also what has made the FDA worry about fortifying corn tortillas with folic acid. I talked to Michael Dunn over the phone. He's a food scientist at Brigham Young University in Utah to find out why that is. So what's the problem? Why wasn't it added back in the 90s? Uh, the consumption of corn masa flour wasn't as high as it is now. We've had a, a large uh, growth in the Hispanic population, widespread consumption of corn masa flour, so it's certainly much more prevalent now. Uh, the other reason is that they didn't really have the stability data back then, um, and they were concerned that they couldn't treat corn masa flour the same as wheat flour because it is an alkaline process, manufacturing mm -hmm. process. They didn't know how it would behave in corn masa flour. And so that was why they were very anxious for a lot more data. For the past three years, Dunn has been experimenting with adding folic acid and corn-based products to prove to the FDA that it is not a dangerous process. He sent his results last fall, and they proved that adding the folic acid to corn tortillas that have gone through the nixtamalization process doesn't cause problems. The folic acid remains stable. And in April in 2016, the FDA started recommending that corn tortillas be fortified with folic acid. This mechanism of fortification of staple food items, I think is a good safety net to try to help as many people as possible. Yeah, I, I had never heard of nixtamalization. I mean, the only way I ever ate corn was boiled fresh corn and that was it mm -hmm. so uh, discovering this that there was a whole kind of culture and civilization behind a certain food was fascinating yeah I'd, I'd say the same thing is the uh, the corn products that I ate growing up were uh, boiled fresh corn or canned corn sometimes uh, and then uh, popcorn but that, that's basically an excuse for eating butter and salt. <laughs> it's more, the corn doesn't have much flavor in that case. The Mesoamericans had to deliberately nishtamalize their food, but nowadays for us, we don't have to do anything. The food comes in a way pre-fortified with vitamins and minerals. So it's, it's a hidden world that I think nishtamalization and, and this kind of podcast opens up to us again. For Distillations, I'm Kyle Meyer. And I'm Bob Kenworthy. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. So many thanks to the excellent Distillations podcast for sharing the story with us. Each episode of Distillations takes a deep dive into a moment of science-related history to shed some light on the present. After the break, a visit to a chicken beauty pageant. Yes, you heard me right. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now I want to revisit one of my favorite segments we've ever done on Good Food. In 2013, contributor Gideon Brower reported for Good Food from an event that's been called the Westminster Dog Show for Exotic Chickens. It's the Seaside Feather Fancier's Spring Fling, 
and it takes place in Ventura. It's one of a handful of festivals across the United States where exotic chickens are judged on their appearance. Gideon went to find out exactly what happens at a chicken beauty pageant. The Home Economics Building at the Ventura County Fairgrounds is the size of an airplane hangar. On this day in mid-April, it's completely filled with fowl. About 700 cackling, clucking, squawking, crowing birds are lined up in rows of individual wire coops stretching the length of the building. There are some ducks, a smattering of geese, a few turkeys. But mostly, there are chickens. Not common barnyard chickens. Rare chickens. Fancy chickens. Hundreds and hundreds of exotic chickens. She could use a little bit more body, but where she's lacking is in that dark color down there, the other part of her wing. That is going to put her out, but she was still fifth best. The Seaside Feather Fancier's Poultry Show is a competition, a beauty pageant that pits bird against bird. Donald Barger is one of the judges. Um, she's a nice bird. She's been, she's been catching my eye all morning. As at other beauty pageants, these chickens are judged for looks, style, charisma. The difference is that unlike Miss America contestants, the chickens don't appear interested in the outcome of the contest or even aware that they're in a contest at all. The chickens also have to live up to a standard of perfection for each breed, as determined by the American Poultry Association. Here's Donald Barger. The book tells what the shape of each body part should be, and that we judge them against the perfect bird and place them accordingly to how they fall in that point system. For some birds, a poor showing here could be a real problem. John Barca has been raising show chickens for more than 30 years. He says he doesn't eat his birds, usually. We eat ours once in a while if they're not quality, good quality for show or breeding. Watching Barger walk down the row of coops, pulling chickens out to examine their wings, tails, and feet, it's hard not to feel bad for these birds. Held to a standard of beauty they didn't create and don't understand, most of them are having a really bad day. Doesn't quite have the breast you'd like to see on them. Just not holding herself together like she was back there. Unfortunately, she's got to go. The ultimate indignity is the concession stand just outside the show hall. The item at the very top of the menu? Chicken sandwich. If you don't know much about show chickens, there's a lot to learn. There are dozens of breeds. Birds of every size and color. Solid, spangled, speckled, mottled. Fluffy white silkies look like manic collections of stray cotton balls. The Polish breed, with its crest of wild feathers, resembles a mid-80s Tina Turner. Some breeds have long, colorful tails. Others have legs so densely feathered they look like overgrown Ugg boots. Some breeds I have to look twice to see which end is which. <laughs> Peggy Ayton has been exhibiting chickens since she was a child. She showed me her Houdan, a black and white bird with a head like a feather duster. She looked like her head exploded. Yes. It's called a crest, but it's a big headdress of feathers on her head. And then she also has a beard, which are the feathers under the chin. And then she has feathers up around her eyes. Right now, the, the current trend is, is Sumatras, and it's a breed of birds that trace back to their jungle origins. 
more recently than many of the other breeds do. So that's a hot chicken right now. Peggy's wearing an apron with pictures of chickens on it. Across the room, Christine Heinrichs has chickens embroidered on her denim jacket and a shirt that asks, have you hugged your chicken today? She's the author of a book about how to raise chickens. It's called How to Raise Chickens. Her latest article is about the wild fowl of Rapa Nui. The chickens of Easter Island, which are evidence that there was contact with prehistoric Polynesia because that's where they came from. The relationship between man and chicken goes back a long way, and it's more complex than you might think. With some animals, it's easy. People hate rats. People love horses. Chickens seem to excite passions on both sides. German filmmaker Werner Herzog has a particular loathing for poultry. The enormity of, of their flat brain, the enormity of their stupidity is just overwhelming. On the other hand, poet Robert Frost wrote a long ode to his own beloved chicken. Christine Heinrichs includes it in her book. Such a fine poet ought to go all coiffured to a winter show and be exhibited and win. The answer is, this one has been. The younger exhibitors at the fair, like an 11-year-old 4-H member named McKenna, feel just as strongly. I love my chickens. When it gets dark, I um, flip them upside down and I rock them to sleep. They're my little babies. Driving away from the fair, I thought about why people choose to spend so many hours raising exotic chickens, and then traveling long distances to shows like this one. It's hard work. There isn't much money in it or glamour. The most you can hope for is a nice trophy with a chicken on the top. But I think part of the appeal, as with trying to grow champion roses or pumpkins, is comradeship. Having an entry in a poultry show or a flower show or a bake-off, you're part of a community with its own traditions, gossip, and vocabulary. And chickens, according to 11-year-old exhibitor Anna, can actually be pretty good company. I love my chickens. I even watch TV with them. Do they sit still and watch the show? Sometimes, but sometimes they like to fly. If you're thinking of raising show chickens yourself, Peggy Ayton says there's plenty of room for you at the next poultry show. There is a chicken here for everybody. If you want, you like lots of feathers, there's that. You want the sleek look, there's that. You want the foo-foo headdresses with the crests, we've got those. We can find you a chicken. For good food, I'm Gideon Brower. That was Gideon Brower in 2013. He reported from the Seaside Feather Fancier's Spring Fling in Ventura. <laughs> Speaking of which, perhaps you've heard of Popeye's Fried Chicken Sandwich. To me, it's a sign of America's longtime obsession with juicy brine chicken encased in a highly seasoned craggy crust. Well, on the other end of the spectrum is karaage, or Japanese fried chicken, with its subtle marinade and light, delicate breading. Earlier this year, my friend Zach Brooks and I checked out Pico Nico by chef Kuniko Yagi, who's attempting to bring it to a wider audience at the Road DTLA. Hello, Zach. 
Hi, Evan. So fried chicken. I mean, fried chicken has always been a beloved American food. It just seems like, at least here in Los Angeles, the number of fried chicken places are becoming exponential. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing. It's a thing. And now it's a thing that we can divide up into three categories, I guess. Standard American fried chicken. All right. I'm with you so far. Nashville hot chicken. And then Japanese fried chicken, which has always had a place here in Los Angeles. Sure. Like you mean karaage. Yeah. Karaage is the Japanese tradition of frying chicken. Usually it's boneless chicken. Often it's been marinated in something umami-esque. Soy sauce, garlic, ginger sometimes. And then it is dusted with potato starch, which gives it a different kind of crisp and crunch than American fried chicken, which is usually dredged in flour. Yeah, it's the delicious balls of fried chicken that you find (laughs) it. uh, You know, you can get it as add-ons at some ramen places, or there are places that specialize just in that. It's pretty delicious. Perhaps we should talk a bit about Kuniko's background. She's a Top Chef alum, but she's been working in L.A. for a long time. She's a self-taught chef who was basically kind of culinarily adopted by Chef David Myers and came in to start learning to cook at Sona and then ended up staying through Komsa, and then the two of them went on to create Hinoki and the Bird. But Bikuniko, which is a play on both Kuniko's name and the Japanese word for picnic, which is pikuniku. Pikuniko is a casual restaurant based on a picnic food that you can take it outside to eat, like lunch and dinner. Main, main menu is uh, Japanese fried chicken. And this is a memory with my grandma. Grandma used to take me to a department store called Takashimaya in Japan like every weekend. And my favorite thing to buy from Takashimaya's department store was the fried chicken. And so this is to my grandma. Thank you. Thank you to her. So let's talk about the chicken. What kind of combinations did you have? So you can get thigh, which is a boneless thigh, um, or a piece of a boneless thigh. Um, They have... Fingers, right? Tenders. Tenders, right. And then, which is, I think, the white meat, right? So if you want dark meat, you get thigh. If you want white meat, you get the tenders. And then they have bone-in wings. But the best part is they have a combo where you get a little of each. So you can get the, the combo that gives you one thigh, two little tenders, and a wing, which is... Perfect. The obvious order, even though I guess if push came to shove... Thigh is probably the best one, right? I I mean, I normally would never order either white meat or a finger or a tender, but I have to say that was some of the most delicious white meat chicken I've had in quite a long time. It was just perfect, so juicy. So let's talk about the texture of this chicken. It was crisp more than craggy. It it doesn't have a ton of batter. Let's hear a little more from Kuniko about that. Um, My fried chicken is not just traditional Japanese fried chicken, but I made a hybrid between southern-style American fried chicken and Japanese chicken. I like American fried chicken being really crispy on the outside crust. Japanese fried chicken is not always really crispy, so I made that to be crispy crust. But uh, I love the marinade, the uh, base of the Japanese fried chicken. Japanese don't necessarily use buttermilk and stuff, but we use uh, soy sauce and ginger and garlic and sake. And we tend to use potato starch for crust, but potato starch is not a thick bind or thick uh, crust that 
you can crunch to uh, bite into. So I added organic brown rice flour to it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely crunchy. I think, listen, in the end, you hear fried chicken, you're like, oh, I have to have fried chicken. You go expecting this to be like a Hal and Ray's situation, right? You're going to be very disappointed. I mean, this is beautifully crafted fried chicken. It's It's the kind of fried chicken I feel like you could eat once a week and not feel bad about it. Oh, totally. It's much more delicate. We should also mention a big thing that it's uh, gluten-free. Yeah, because it's potato starch that she uses to dredge the chicken, it's gluten-free. Yeah, she's using actually sourced pasture-raised chicken. So there's a lot to be said for that. And the dipping sauces are another way in which this experience is quite different because they're not barbecue. There is one that has a bit of spice, but it's not overwhelming. The parsley sesame one, right? Yeah. The one that was kind of Japanese version of chimichurri, I felt yes, like. That, I think that's my favorite one. I have to say I loved both the lemon aioli and the daikon ponzu oroshi. Yeah, so you have your—you get your choice of combo, and then you can choose either— these delicious fingerling potatoes that are dusted with, like, a seaweed salt or the rice ball. But truthfully, it's best to go with a group of people and just order everything. The salads, to me, are really the thing that set this place apart. It's the kind of thing that that I crave that I want to go back and eat again. So, like, for example, the potato salad. So you say potato salad, and even in a Japanese context, what I think of is a potato Lots of mayonnaise, kind of something in between cut up and smashed with a bit of a sesame taste and some broccoli thrown in there. And this is kind of that, but but she uses Japanese sweet potatoes. Which makes it completely different. It makes it something that I actually like because I'm not a huge potato salad fan. It's so delicious. And it's so good. It's it's my favorite potato salad I've ever eaten. (laughs) And then she has a salad made of pickles, like a pickle salad, basically, that's also delicious, that I think had watermelon radish and... Cucumbers, wakame. Beautiful. Yes. That's the super crunchy one. Yep. And then there's a slaw, which is, you know, your cabbage, your kale, your red onion, but with a really nice sesame vinaigrette. And it's delicious. And to me, I could eat a big bowl of that slaw and a couple pieces of fried chicken on top. And that would be a perfect lunch. And then the one thing I didn't get is the chicken egg drop soup, which if you go online now sort of has its own thread. (laughs) It is really good. Yeah, and I guess some people had gone to Kuniko and said, why don't you turn this into a porridge by adding a little more rice? And she did that. So apparently now there's a secret menu item. Mm. Did you try the sandwich? I didn't I didn't get to the sandwich. Yeah, the sandwich is I guess what makes her sandwich different is that she serves it on this like golden bun. It's a turmeric bun and I have to give Kuniko a shout out because she was the first person in LA to make charcoal buns. Oh right, for the lobster roll yeah, at Hinoki and the Bird. Exactly. So she has a a history of playing with dough. It is a good fried chicken sandwich, but it's not the thing that I'm going to think of when I think of this oh, place. Oh, yeah, no, I'm definitely going to get a basket. We should also say they have a, a, a rice bowl with grilled chicken if you're, you know, into those sort of healthy things. So there are reasons for everybody to enjoy this place. This is Los Angeles, after all. Earlier this year, I spoke with Smorgasburg LA General Manager Zach Brooks about 
Pikoniko by chef Kuniko Yagi. You can try her signature karaage at The Row in downtown Los Angeles. In other chicken news, you might have heard that Kentucky Fried Chicken will be adding plant-based chicken nuggets to the menu. Maybe it's a sign of the end times, but it also illustrates a growing demand for meat alternatives at a time when the rainforests are literally on fire. After the break, I'm going back to the first time I tried the Impossible Burger. Stick around. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. The Amazon rainforest is burning, largely a direct result of ranchers clearing land to raise cattle. As environmental concerns grow, some diners are turning to plant-based meat alternatives, such as the Impossible Burger. In 2017, I tried the plant-based patty for the first time at Crossroads Kitchen, an upscale vegan restaurant in West Hollywood. In light of the current news, I wanted to play it for you again. Scott Jones. That's easy enough, right? Scott Jones is executive chef of Crossroads Kitchen. I went to the vegan restaurant on Melrose to taste the Impossible Burger, the latest beef poser that's on the menu at a handful of restaurants in California. It's supposed to have the mouthfeel and visual cues of meat, like bleeding. So we're serving it in a classic Southern California style on a plant-based bun, lettuce, tomato, onion, and then our special sauce that we make that's um, all plant-based, including the coconut-based follow-your-heart cheddar cheese that uh, is a great product and, and melts. We heard about the Impossible Burger from so many people. In New York, David Chang is a fan. And in San Francisco, Chris Cosentino made, quote, beef, unquote, tartare from this stuff. So we had to taste it for ourselves. The burgers have arrived, the Impossible Burgers. Okay, so I will first of all say, as a person with a highly trained nose, (laughs) that the flavor wafting in here is not the flavor of beef, but it is kind of the flavor of a gravy product. Looking at the burger from the side, where you can see the cooked burger and the cheese, melted cheese draped over, and then the, the charred bits of bun, I will say that it looks indistinguishable. From a hamburger. Okay, let's taste. I have to say, it's surprisingly good. Well, you know, I mean, 12 years ago when I started doing this and I got introduced to Tal Ronan and I had a restaurant with Chrissy Hine from the Pretenders in Akron, Ohio called The Vegetarian, which was the Midwest's first plant-based upscale restaurant with a full bar and bar program. And, you know, Michael Simon looked at me and actually called me and said, what are you doing? Tal Ronan is the chef and founder of Crossroads, and Michael Simon is a celebrity chef who owns lots of restaurants in the U.S. So you need to lay down the bacon. Relax. As a chef and having two other animal protein-based restaurants at the time that I opened the restaurant with Chrissy and being all plant-based, I was a hard sell. I spit a lot of things out, but they've come a long way. The mass of people requesting it has grown exponentially. Absolutely. And, and, and minds have opened. We don't say the word vegan here at, at Crossroads, nor do I speak about it because it comes with a lot of baggage. You know, people shut their minds off right when you say vegans. Instead of saying, you know, plant-based where people can wrap their heads around it a little bit better, 
Now that we've tasted the Impossible Burger, let's consider how it was made. I invited two UCLA professors to join me at Crossroads to break down the science, Amy Roat and Jenny Jay. We got them a couple of burgers for their troubles. So, Amy, the thing that makes this burger different from what I've read is the addition of something called heme. What is that? So heme is a cofactor of a protein like hemoglobin, also hemoglobin that's found in our blood. But the protein engineered for the Impossible Burger is like hemoglobin that's produced by yeast. And this is important for nitrogen fixation because having oxygen around inhibits the efficiency of the nitrogen fixation process, which is important for the plant. So having this heme, which has a really high affinity for oxygen in the like hemoglobin, makes it better for the plant. And it also imparts this color and also slightly metallic flavor to the Impossible Burger. So first of all, who knew that plants had a type of hemoglobin? Yeah, it's important for nitrogen fixation because it binds uh, with very high affinity to oxygen and the oxygen limits the nitrogen fixation process. Because when I was reading about the burger and I, and I heard about heme, I thought to myself, if we're eating hemoglobin in this heme form, then aren't we really eating a form of meat? But now I understand that it's a different type. Yeah. And then I guess in addition to fully answer your question, there's also molecules from wheat that are important for the basic foundation structure of it. Coconut fat as well, which like many types of meat fat has saturated fats, which melt at a higher temperature. So that's important for creating pockets of fat in the burger, similar to to a beef burger has a nice brown, crispy edges. And if you peel away the bun, it also seems to have a little bit of a fibrous appearance. It's pretty close. It's the closest I've ever seen. What about you, Jenny? You're a a veteran. For me, it's been a while since I've had a beef burger, but it fits my memory exactly. I think it is um, right on. How long has it been? Well, 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) See, in my mind, these kind of burgers are more for people who want to make the switch rather than people who have made the commitment and been doing it for years and years. Mm -hmm. It's great to have more options for people to shift their diets because with the environmental crisis we're facing, we need everybody to make changes in the way they feel comfortable. For some people, that won't have anything to do with food, but for other people, food can be like a low-hanging fruit for reducing carbon footprint, carbon emissions. Because meat is one of the most resource-intensive products. So if we can make it from plants, it's a huge benefit. So given that agriculture as a whole is one of the biggest producers of carbon emissions, how big can the impact be by moving away from meat? Livestock accounts for around 15% of the global CO2 emissions. So that's more than transportation. A lot of times when we think about carbon footprint, we mostly think of transportation, but actually just livestock alone accounts for a huge fraction of that. There are papers showing that we need to have dietary shifts in order to meet the Paris climate targets. And now we see that achieving that is going to require a lot of personal commitment from everyone. So, But agriculture in general is part of this huge carbon footprint. So given that it's still made from plants, I mean, we have to eat something, right? So there is still a carbon Absolutely. footprint. But when you grow an animal for food, you feed it the whole time it's living. So you're growing plants and 85 to 90% of that energy that the animal is consuming goes to 
it's metabolism, just it's, it's daily life, or it might be lost in manure, or it might make parts of the body that we're not interested in, skin and bones and things. Uh, so it's only a small fraction of energy from the plants that is actually converted to energy that we would then eat. So that's why it's thought of a, as a wasteful process because of all of the, the feed that goes into it. To make that feed requires fertilizer, water, pesticides, land, all of those resources that then are largely going into just sustaining the animal while it grows. So that's one source of greenhouse emissions. Ruminant animals, including cows, have an extra carbon footprint in that their natural metabolism causes them to produce methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So that's why you have an even bigger multiplier when you're talking about getting beef from cows. And when you're talking about their natural metabolism of ruminants, you're talking about burps and farts. Yes. For the children who listen to the show. Cow burps, yes. (laughs) Amy, are we talking about meat that's grown in the lab or is it meat that is put together in a mixing bowl from elements that are grown in a lab? So this is not meat grown in a Petri dish. This is figuring out how to formulate a burger that simulates, recapitulates that flavor and texture of meat, which is a huge challenge. A lot of plant-based burgers on the market up until recently have just been you know, mixtures of proteins like wheat or black beans or whatever that, you know, you heat them up and then you eat them. But this new generation of plant-based burger products is really interesting because they change color and texture as you cook them. That process has come with a huge number of scientific challenges in trying to recapitulate that. So either using colors like the heme or beet juice and textures. How do you get the texture of a burger? How do you get that nice browning happening when you heat it up and you cook it? Those challenges have required years and years of development. So when you say engineered, go into that a bit more. So this is a really common method that um, is used widely in scientific research and also in foods. Some people might be familiar with genetically modified organisms, GMOs. But in this particular case, they take the DNA that encodes this protein and they put it into a yeast. And then the yeast are grown up and then they produce this protein. It can be purified from the yeast mixture. And then it's folded into the other plant materials. That's right. Such as potatoes and wheat and coconut oil that are other ingredients as well. Some binding agents, xanthan gum that are all mixed together. So this burger in particular that we're eating isn't, quote, bleeding. Right. This is the American-style smash burger that's a thinner style, so it's hard to see the bloodiness of it. But I think talking about how this is a mixture formulation of different products, it's interesting to think about the carbon footprint and the amount of energy that's required for all those ingredients. I don't think it's quite as simple as... Just this is plant-based because when you're thinking about growing the yeast, you have to feed the yeast and the fermentation process has to be aseptic. So, I mean, there's a lot of other factors that I think need to be considered. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Right. I do know the company is considering the carbon footprint of every step along the way, the packaging of the products that come to them, the packaging going out, everything seems to be being considered. And I know they did do one life cycle analysis so that they were able to come up with some estimates that showed that they were using far fewer resources. They're now redoing that life cycle assessment. I haven't seen the detailed numbers, so I can't assess it, but they did 
say it uses a 20th of the land and one eighth of the greenhouse Mm -hmm. gases. People often think that they have to go all or nothing in a decision like this, but uh, I understand that actually incremental change can be very powerful. For sure. It's not an all or nothing decision. Even just switching out one meal can actually have a huge impact. We've done some calculations. Even just switching out, say, a beef chili for a lentil soup can be around the same emissions as driving your car for 18 miles. You have a blog which gives a lot of insight into these kinds of choices. What is the website? www.easymealsfortheplanet. And it just presents very simple recipes. I don't like to spend a ton of time in the kitchen myself, but I want to have a low carbon footprint. So meals that are quick, easy, and also have a low carbon footprint are presented on the blog along with the calculations. And then there's a little bit of text explaining the calculations, why certain products are more resource intensive than others. Well, that was our tasting of apparently the very possible impossible burger. Thank you so much to UCLA professors Amy Rowett and Jenny Jay for coming to Crossroads from the campus and also to executive chef Scott Jones for feeding us. That's it for our show. If you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team, Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joel Stein, Joseph Stone, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Kenny Ng. I'm Evan Kleiman, and I'll be back next week with a new episode of Good Food.